These past three weeks, I've drawn your attention to three different Old Testament passages uh, as we focus on the incarnation of the eternal Son. Just as a personal testimony, it's been a a real blessing for me um, reading through the Christmas narratives, as we call them, during our Christmas time. uh, It's been really helpful to have this Old Testament background behind it. We started looking at Isaiah 7. Remember verse 14, a virgin shall conceive. And we saw in Isaiah 7 that the Messiah's virgin birth was prophesied in a dark time in Israel to encourage them to be faithful in a time of unbelief and to underline God's truthfulness. Then we looked at the book of Obadiah. Obadiah. And we saw there how Jesus is the conquering king who will vanquish his enemies and establish his kingdom. Do you remember how Obadiah ends in verse 21? The kingdom will be the Lord's. What a great statement ending that book. And then last week in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that we all know uh, from reading the Christmas narratives, speaking of where the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, That was given to show that this Messiah is David's son, the eternal God. And he comes from very humble roots, Bethlehem, to rule Israel. That brings us to Zephaniah. Go with me to Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 1. Zephaniah 1 and verse 1. Often prophets will begin by, they almost always begin with, the word of the Lord came to me. And then they might tell who their dad was. Zephaniah gives four generations. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. Zephaniah was a prophet of royal blood. And we read here in verse 1 that he ministered in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. What were the times like that Zephaniah ministered in? During these days of Josiah, we don't know when Zephaniah ministered. If you know anything about King Josiah, you know He became king at eight years old, and through his teen years, he was seeking the Lord. He restored the temple, and the more he learned and the more he read from Scripture, the more he determined that he would bring Judah to worship God. He brought things back in order. Some backstory to that. Josiah's grandpa, Manasseh, was one of the, if not the most wicked kings in Judah. Manasseh got rid of almost everything in the temple, replaced it with idolatry, had human worship, human sacrifices throughout Judah, named his son, not a good Hebrew name, but named his son Ammon, more than likely after one of the Egyptian gods, Amun. A dark pagan time. 
But the boy king, Josiah, worked to right the ship. God sent Zephaniah to Judah to preach the Lord's sure coming judgment on every trace of rebellion, the day of the Lord. Pound for pound, the book of Zephaniah mentions that phrase, the day of the Lord, more than any other book. What will that time be like in the future that has not happened yet? Let's quickly go through these first two chapters. We read in chapter 1, I'm not going to read all these, but just key verses and mention things about the others. Look at verses 2 and 3 of chapter 1. God says, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. You read the book of Revelation and you read on how the judgments, half of mankind will be slaughtered. And then another series of judgments, a third of mankind will be slaughtered. And then another series of judgments, half of mankind will be slaughtered. It will be a time of utter judgment. In verse 3 of how he will cut off man from the face of the earth. In verse 4, he will cut off every trace of idolatry. In verse 5, he will cut off Israelites who say, we worship the Lord and we worship these pagan idols. In verse 8, look at verse 8. It shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes of the kings and the kings and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. He will punish Judah's political leaders who adopt pagan culture. Now think back to what you know about the Mosaic Law. What kind of clothes were they supposed to wear? They weren't supposed to wear mixed garments. Whole. What kind of culture were they supposed to have? They were not to have nothing to do with the surrounding pagan cultures. The holy Israelite, holy devoted to the Lord. And what are these leaders doing? God will punish them. Verse 9, he will punish the violent and the deceitful. In verse 11, he'll cut down the merchants who trust in their riches. Look at verse 12. It shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. What a picture. God will search Jerusalem with lamps. A floodlight on every nook and cranny of godlessness in Jerusalem. Punishing those with a very low view of God, a practical atheism. You hear what they said there? The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. God doesn't do good. He doesn't do evil either. He doesn't do anything. He's detached from creation. He's not interested. God will make everything, verse 13, unhabitable. And then one of the greatest expressions of the day of the Lord in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. Even the strongest cannot endure it. Verse 15, that day is a day of wrath 
a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. No escaping his wrath. He'll make everything uninhabitable. Then we come to chapter 2. Read in the first couple of verses how he will give full expression to his wrath. It'd be level 10, as we would put it. He will cause Israel's enemies, in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, to be forsaken, desolate, driven out, uprooted, and wiped out. He'll make verses 8 and 9... In verses 8 and 9, he'll make their uh, Israel's perennial enemies, Moab and Ammon, he'll make them like Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire from God fell down and completely devastated it. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, Indeed, all the shores of the nation. In verse 12, he'll slay with a sword. In verses 13 to 15, he'll completely destroy the superpower of their time, Assyria and its capital, Nineveh. Make it a barren desolation without inhabitant. And then we come to chapter 3, and I read verses 1 to 7 of Jerusalem's sins, her rebellion and unbelief how she oppressed the weak, their pride and insolence, their violence, how they polluted his sanctuary, transgressed his law. They were devoted to corruption. The people of Judah and Jerusalem, they were devoted to everything except God. And so that brings us then to verse 8. Well, he will gather the nations to Israel, pour out his indignation and fierce anger, and devour the earth. The battle of Armageddon. If you're following along in your handout, I ask a question at the top. What should the few believing Israelites in Zephaniah's time do? Number one, for now, Israel must trust in the Lord. Israel must trust in the Lord until the day of the Lord. That is the force of this word in verse 8 of wait. You must simply trust me. The day of the Lord, first number one in verse 8, will involve a time of judgment. A time of judgment. Verse 8, therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms to pour on them my indignation. What a picture. Pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, 
All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Remember what unbelieving Jews were like and what they were doing in chapter 1, verse 12, when they said, God just sits in the heaven. He doesn't do good. He doesn't do evil. They're essentially saying, God just sitting in heaven, twiddling his thumbs. No, he's not. What is God doing? He is patiently waiting to fulfill his purposes in his time. The judgment of the Lord is near. And he will fulfill it. During this afternoon's devotional, we'll have a a time of lunch and a brief devotional. I'm going to focus on the Lord's providence as we see that in the Christmas accounts. Go back to Zephaniah 3.8. The time is going to come when he rises up in judgment. And the judgments of chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 3, verse 7, they will be accomplished. You pour out my indignation and my fierce anger. So believing Jews during that time, they will suffer much, much grief that they endure. What should they do? They must wait on the Lord a quiet trust. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment. And number two, verses 9 to 13, it will be a time of blessing. It will be a time of blessing. For now Israel must trust the Lord until the time when the day of the Lord comes. A time of judgment, yes, but a time of blessing. What kind of blessing will the Lord do after his judgments are done? We read in verse 9 how the Lord Jesus Christ will bless the nations. That's your blank there. He will bless the nations. We read in verse 9, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure nation, a pure language, that they may call on, they all call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. What is this pure language that God will cause everyone to speak? Americans are going to say what? Well, English, of course. My friends in Chile are going to say what? Uh, Española for sure. <laughs> I don't know anybody in Russia. Is it a reversal of Babel? It might be. It could involve that. This is referring particularly to regeneration, to being born again. You might say, how did you get that out of the text, Pastor? Look at the text. I will restore to the peoples a pure language. For what purpose? Why are you going to do this, God? Look at the rest. That they may all call on the name of the Lord and to serve him with one accord. Does a mere change of language enable one who hated God to now call on the Lord? Does a mere change of language, will that cause one to gladly obey the Lord? No, it will not. What has to happen? 1 Corinthians 12 says, no one calls Jesus Lord unless they're born again. 
This is looking ahead to when the Lord will enable regeneration and obedience. Everyone will call. Did you see that? All will call on the name of the Lord. Everyone on the face of the earth will worship the Lord. That's what's wrapped up in that word, serve him. And it will be, as it says at the end of verse 9, with one accord. Shoulder to shoulder, all humanity will love Christ, will worship him. They'll be unified. That's their purpose. That's what they're agreed on. That's what they're yoked together. Folks, can you imagine that? No matter, can you imagine that no matter where you go, no matter what restaurant you enter into, what store, what government agency you go to, you go to renew your license plates. You know, there's going to be believers there who love the Lord. Can you imagine what a time of blessing the Lord will do? He, when he blesses the nations. The Lord's focus here is specifically on, uh, on verses 10 to 13. The Lord Jesus Christ will bless Israel. He will bless Israel. What will he do? In verse 10. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. God will cause Israel to be regathered to worship him. In the verses 11 to 12, he will purify them to humbly trust him. The beginning of verse 11. In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. No more shame of rebellion. No more shame of rebellion. They will live righteous lives. In the second part of verse 11, then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. No more proud, haughty boasters of sin and rebellion. Verse 12, a meek and humble people who trust in the name of the Lord. And this is in contrast to their pride in verses 1 to 3. In verse 13, we read how they will uh, do no righteousness and speak no lies. Completely righteous lives and completely righteous speech. And then the last part of verse 13 seems kind of out of place, but it says they shall feed their flocks and lie down and no one shall make them afraid. The idea of this is they will have rest and peace. It will be peace on earth because Messiah reigns. The few believing Jews during Josiah's time, following Manasseh, following Ammon, they lived among a wicked people. And what were they to do? Chapter 3, verse 8. Wait for me, says the Lord. And so as they waited by faith for the Lord to act, they looked forward to the day of the, the second part of this message. In verses 14 to 20. Then Israel will rejoice. Your next blank. Israel will rejoice in the Lord in the day of the Lord. Israel will rejoice in the Lord in the day of the Lord. We know this is yet future because it says in verse 16, in that day, it hasn't happened yet. And in that day, the Lord will do several things. Number one, the Lord Jesus Christ will dwell in Israel, verse 15. 
They will sing, verse 14. They will be glad and rejoice in that time. Why? Verse 15, the Lord will dwell in Israel. Look at that. End of verse 15, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. And he will shower his mercies on them. The beginning of verse 15. Take away your judgments and cast out your enemies. Boy, Israel deserves God's judgment, don't they? More often than not in their history, they've been unbelieving. They've disobeyed his law. Yeah, there's been some good ones for sure. But by and large, the majority of them have been godless. And the source of their mercies is their present ruling Messiah, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst, and you shall see disaster no more. A second thing he will do. The Lord Jesus Christ will bless Israel. Verses 16 to 17, he will bless Israel. And be, he, he's saying, he, and then he says in verse 16, you will have no need to fear and despair. Look with me at verse 16. In that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. They will experience terrible and horrific circumstances causing fear. And during that time, it will cause their hands to be weak. And the idea is despair. You get in such a position where you have great fear you can't do anything except tremble. Why will this happen? What's the source of their blessings? Verse 17. Verse 17. The Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. The Messiah will be present with them and rule in them. Then the last part of verse 17, which one has called the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice with gladness and singing. I want you to think about this. I'll develop this more in a little while. But the Messiah, when he's in Jerusalem, will rejoice over Israel with gladness and singing. What is there about Judah and Jerusalem to be glad about, to rejoice about? It's because he chose to love them. And he fulfills his promises. Write down Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'll read this portion, but just listen. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. God said, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you are more in number than any other people. For you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So when this time comes, Zephaniah, when Israel's regathered, 
What will the Lord do? He will rejoice over them with gladness and singing. And then the middle statement there, the New King James translates this, this phrase, he will quiet you with his love. If you're using a, a New American Standard or a King James, or different, there's different ways that this passage is put, this little phrase here. I think the New King James nails it, not just because I'm carrying the King James. You know I've done my fair share of, of tweaking of the New King James and the Ecclesiastes passage. Why is it best to understand this Hebrew phrase as, as he will quiet you with his love? Well, consider the, the bread of the sandwich here. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will rejoice over you with singing. And what's in the middle? He will quiet with his love. Quiet whom with his love? Quiet the Lord with his love? That's how some translate it. He is quieted by his love. I think it's best in that immediate context to see he's saying he will quiet Jerusalem with his love. But not only the context, but the the way that this Hebrew word is put together here. It's the idea that he causes you to experience this. I will cause you to be quieted with my love. This follows the Lord's exhortation to Jerusalem in verse 16. Don't fear, and don't let your hands be weak. So what does one who is paralyzed by fear feel like? He frets, wrings his hands, worries, weeps, cries, and trembles. And what will the Lord do? He will quiet you with his love. Put a bookmark here. I'd like to take you to another reason why I think this is best translated as he will quiet you with his love. Other prophets who said the same thing. Let's first go to Isaiah chapter 30. Four passages to look at. From Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 15. He will quiet you with his love. As we finish, as I finish working through this, these next uh, few minutes, these statements are extremely profound. I would urge you to meditate on them. And so I put them on the front of your bulletin. This fact, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. These are tremendous truths. But Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Sounds like the beginning of that passage there in Zephaniah, doesn't it? And returning and rest, you shall be saved in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Flip over a page or two to chapter 32. 
Isaiah 32, verse 16. Isaiah 32, verse 16. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Though hail comes down on the forest, and the city is brought low in humiliation. Flip over to chapter 33, verse 20. Chapter 33, and verse 20. Just two more. Look upon Zion, chapter 33, verse 20. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will be removed, nor will its cords be broken. But there, the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. Why? For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your tackle is loose. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. The prey of great plunders divided. The lame take the prey. The inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Last, Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, the next book over in verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 8 through 11. Jeremiah 30, verse 8. It shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore, do not fear, my servant Jacob, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel. Remember Zephaniah 3, don't fear, or let your hands hang down. Why don't fear, why not be dismayed? For behold, I will save you from afar, and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest, and be quiet and no one shall make him afraid for I am with you says the Lord to save you though I will make a full end of all nations where I've scattered you yet I will not make a complete end of you I'll correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished let's go back now to Zephaniah chapter 3 a third thing the Lord will do with Israel in verses 18 to 20 is the Lord Jesus Christ will exalt Israel. He will exalt Israel. In this last part of Zephaniah, it's the Lord who speaks. It's the Lord who speaks to sorrowing believers burdened by the reproach of God's worship. In verse 18, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. Unbelievers, whether pagans 
For Jews who had turned from the Lord, they look at God's worship as something that they can't stand. And godly believers who are in the minority, they grieve at how God's worship is reproached. And what will the Lord do? Verse 19, he's going to deal with those enemies. At that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. This word, same word afflict, was used in Exodus 1 of Egypt afflicting Israel. It was used in 2 Samuel 7 when the Lord said, promised David that none would afflict his future descendant. It's used in the passage we read together from Psalm 89. I think it's in verse 22. I underlined it on the back of your bulletin. That word afflict in the second column near the bottom. They will not be afflicted. The Lord will deal with those who afflict his people. The rest of verse 18 and 19 and 20 talks about how he will gather Israel. He'll bring them back from exile, no matter where they're at, and then he will officially exalt them. He says in verse 19, I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they're put to shame. That concept of appointing, it is an official declaration, a government statement that he will do. He will lift up Israel out of the dirt, officially exalting them. So Jews who believe the Lord during Josiah's time, Josiah's struggling, trying to make a reverse, loving what they're seeing, but everything's against them. How should they respond? The bottom of your sheet here is what Zephaniah says. Trust in and obey the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge evildoers and fulfill his every promise to Israel. I'd like to end our time going back to verse 17 on that John 3, 16 of the Old Testament passage. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He'll quiet you with his love. He'll rejoice over you with singing. Why will Christ do that? Why will Jesus do that? Is he going to do it because Israel is such a good people? Will he do it because they're so lovable? Will he do it because he just won't be able to help himself? No. He will do it because he chose to love them. That's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? He will do it because he set his love on them. He will do it because he made promises to them. And nothing, it's nothing because of them. It's everything because of him. In that day, taking some statements about the Lord from Zephaniah 3 here, 
Christ, the King of Israel, the Lord, the Mighty One. He will dwell in the midst of Israel. And think about what that means. Think about his grandeur, his glory, his absolute purity and holiness. He will be on earth. And this one who is the eternal one, the mighty one, the Lord God, the King of Israel, who dwells in the midst of Israel, he is going to dwell in the midst of a people who for thousands of years ignored him, broke his law, and trampled it under their feet, turned their back on him, and what will he do to and for them? He will rejoice over them with gladness. He will quiet them with his love. He will rejoice over them with singing. He is not going to be forced to do this. He'll do it with gladness. He's not just going to, when he gets there, sit there and kind of grudge up a little smile. He's going to sing. He's not just going to, when he comes, let Israel stew in fear. The Messiah's come. Now what are we going to do? He's going to quiet them with his love. He will be a joyous ruler. That's great for Israel. What about us, huh? What about you? What do we deserve? We're not Jews. None of those promises are for us. We're Gentiles. Come from pagan stock. Hopeless. Praise the Lord for John 3.16. Praise the Lord for Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Take my yoke upon you. Praise the Lord for Revelation 22.17. If anyone's thirsty, let him drink. I'd like to imagine, I'd like you to imagine that you have a job. Well, I don't want you to imagine that you have a job. Imagine that you have a job and you're working for a family-owned company. Now, kids, you don't want to imagine working. You like your state of unemployment and dependency, perhaps. But I know how it goes. Kids grow up, they want to leave. They want to be on their own. That means you need a job. Imagine you're working for a family-owned company. This family loves their business, and they love their employees. Anybody want to work there? Top-of-the-line stuff. No expense spared. Excellent wages, excellent benefits. They work hard to provide a good working environment. Anyone want to, yeah, work for that place now? 
But the sad thing is, most employees don't appreciate it. They do as little as possible to get by. They don't do good work. In fact, they intentionally introduce viruses into the computer system or on the shop floor. They're doing all they can to mess up things in the machinery and the presses. But the, the owner keeps being a gracious, merciful, giving owner. One day, the owner's youngest son needs a job. And the owner's youngest son, he doesn't take the top spot. He takes an entry-level job on the shop floor. The employees, they don't like him one bit. They're mean to him. When he asks one of them, hey, can you go get me a cup of coffee? They go get the cup of coffee. They spit in it without his knowledge and then put it and say, here you go. They get his lunch from the refrigerator and stick a mouse, a dead mouse, in a sandwich. If they can get away with it, they'll do some physical harm. They'll cuss him out, treat him badly, steal supplies, make fun of him, and do all they can. One day, the owner of the business declares, I am going to retire. I'm going to step down. Any surprise who's going to be the new CEO? That young son who was on the shop floor, he suddenly goes to the top spot. What would you do? How would you feel? Most of the employees still do not like him. Speak behind his back, do all they can. And that son knows it. And he fires a bunch of them. But some of those other ones, he not only gives them raises, he gives them higher position, makes them officers, puts them on the board, and they wonder, how could this be? And his answer is simply this. It's what I chose to do. A ruler is coming from heaven who is holy and all-powerful and he will judge sin and wickedness on the earth. And he will be a joyous ruler. So we must do chapter 2, verse 3, and seek him. And right now we must do chapter 3 and verse 8 and wait for him, trust in him. You might be a Christian this morning who's burdened and weighed down with care and doubt. Perhaps, maybe you're a Christian you have started to wander away from the Lord. What do you need to do this morning? You need to wait on the Lord. Maybe you're a faithful Christian and you grieve how the cause of Christ is reproached today. What do you need to do? Wait on the Lord.
And you wait on the Lord, knowing that when he comes, what will he do? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He, our Savior, who died for us, will rejoice over you with singing. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.